the Report Card with Matt Malthus, the Education Policy Podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Well, we're 11 months into the pandemic, or at least since students across the country saw their daily routines completely upended. Over the course of one weekend in March, most students were tossed into the largely uncharted waters of remote learning. Soccer practice, dance recitals, choir rehearsals, and chess club meetings were canceled and lunchroom banter and hallway conversation disappeared. On the last episode of the report card, we heard how the disruptions of the pandemic were affecting student learning in the aggregate. But on this episode, I wanna go beyond the data sets and averages and ask how are students holding up and how can we continue to support them through this difficult period? Here to weigh in on those issues are two nationally recognized school counselors. Joining me is Laura Ross, who's the lead counselor at Five Forks Middle School in Lawrenceville, Georgia, which serves about 1,200 students in grades six to eight. Laura was named School Counselor of the Year for 2020 by the American School Counselor Association. Also joining us is Kat Pastor-Lawrence. Kat is a school counselor at Flagstaff High School in Flagstaff, Arizona, which serves about 1,500 students. And Kat was named School Counselor of the Year in 2016. Laura, Kat, thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. Excited to join Laura in this conversation we're about to have. So let me wish you a happy belated School Counselors Week. We're going to be talking about how students are doing. But first, I want to ask you, how are you holding up? Laura? I'm pretty well. It's been an overwhelming year of um, changes just professionally as a school counselor, changes to routines and and just sort of how we do things as school counselors and trying to balance that out with personally being effective with the pandemic and other other things going on. It's it's been overwhelming, but I've, you know, also learned how to, I think at this point, balance as best I can all of those things and making sure I have the time for my own personal dealings with how the pandemic has affected friends and family and myself um, so that I can deal with all the different changes um, that has come in school counseling and education this year. Kat, how are you holding up? Hanging in there, like Laura said, it's been a very um, tumultuous semester and fall semester and everything just seems to be everywhere. Um, I, I think the the stamina of trying to work and be a caretaker and a school counselor and a mentor and an advisor and an educator and all the things that Laura and I are in our roles as school counselor can take toll on you. And I think right now the my stamina, I feel like I might have started sprinting this marathon and I feel like my stamina is not as where it should be. I wish I would have started journaling during this process because I thought I would remember all the emotions and thoughts that I've had this whole time, but I don't know if I want to remember those at this moment in time, but I'm sure we'll reflect back on this many years later and find that we did a lot of growth during this time. I'm sure. Now, to help everybody understand what it's like to be a school counselor during a pandemic and how your job changed and and, and how the student that you're dealing with have fared, an important first step is really understanding what do school counselors do? I mean, a lot of us have some assumptions about it, but I don't think we really know. So can you give us just the thumbnail of what is it that school counselors do? And uh, Kat, you're in high school, which I think is a little more familiar to us. So can you just give us the, the first cut on that? 
Yeah, you know, the school counselor's role, as Laura, I think, alluded to earlier, really has changed and evolved as the profession started umpteen years ago. And school counselors really are are slated with knowing the whole child. And I think that's why school counselors do so much is because school counselors are focused on the whole student, whether that's their social emotional well-being, their academics, and their college and career readiness. And we do that, both Laura and I do that, I think very well through our comprehensive school counseling programs. And it's the same, whether it's in high school, elementary or middle, it's just the time that we spend is a little bit different. Laura, I don't know if you wanna go into that a little bit differently. Absolutely, I think we focused on all of those things about our students. For us in our middle school, it's really about being as proactive as possible in all of those areas and really making sure we're reaching all of our students. Um, I think that's maybe a common misnomer about school counselors that we work with certain students who have certain problems or things like that. And we're really working with all students. And so all of our students are getting support in social emotional well-being and getting support in academics and um, college and career readiness. So for us, we do a lot of lessons in the classrooms so that all students get get that. We do a lot of school-wide programs. And then, um, you know, for those students who maybe need a little extra support um, in different areas, doing small groups, doing individual support with them. There's always crisis response that, that we provide, but also working with all of our teachers as well. So, you know, we're not the ones in the classrooms with them every day. And so making sure that all of our teachers are getting supports and how to connect with their students, be that liaison with us as well as they see them all the time and can can get some information to us that we may need for students who may need those extra supports that we don't um, give in the whole classroom lessons or the school-wide um, initiatives. So um, yeah, we're, we school counselors are, are doing a lot and are out of our offices and out in the building and working with teachers and students and families um, and not just sort of figuring out paper pushing or things like that, that I think sometimes in the past, that's what people understood about what school counselors do. Sure. And frequently I hear this number, the average school counselor has to serve 450 students. How many students do you guys serve? At our middle school, we're around 1,200, a little bit over, and we have two and a half counselors. We have a part-time counselor, but she does all the student support team meetings and things with parents. So to serve our students in our grade levels, there's just two of us. So we about have about 600 plus each. So more than the often cited 450. Kat, how many do you serve? Arizona tends to rank the first in this. Our, our state average in Arizona is over 900 students to one counselor. At our school, we are the same. We have three and a half school counselors dedicated to between 16 and 1,700 students. So some years we fluctuate between 450 and 500 students. On top of other things that Laura and I do as far as serving as club advisors, things of that nature. So our, our job responsibility is working with the students, but also working within the school system. Let me put on the board for our listeners, you know, uh, we have some school counselors that are working in schools that are, you know, it's not back to business as, as usual, but a lot of kids are back in the building or they're hybrid or some are fully remote. Can you just give me a quick thumbnail of where you've been since last March? Uh, how long were you closed? if you reopened, uh, when, and what do you expect for the rest of the year? Laura? So last March is when we went digital, virtual learning. 
what we thought was two weeks, um, <laughs> of course, turned out the rest of the school year. This school year, when we started in the fall, we started virtually again. And honestly, I thought we would be there for, for a little while. And we were virtual for a, a few weeks. And then um, we did a phase in plan in our district where parents and guardians families had a choice of if they wanted to come back in person, their students in person, following, you know, all the guidelines, or if they wanted to stay virtual in their learning. And so we did a phase in plan of that sixth grade, um, and our students receiving special education services came in the first week, the second week, seventh grade, and the next week, eighth grade. So when we started, we were probably about, in the fall, about 30-ish percent students who were in person, about 70% who were learning virtually. We're now probably more half and half. We may be leaning a little bit more to students who are in person than virtual. And so our teachers are teaching um, both simultaneously. So they teach their in-person students in their classroom and also have their virtual students on Zoom throughout the day. So the last time any of us stepped foot in any school building in, in our district was March 13th last year. We are still 100% remote. I hope we have a plan with what Laura was talking about, a phase in return to school. Our school board is going to be meeting in a few weeks to determine what that might look like. The numbers in Arizona and particularly our county have been really, really high. And so the metrics that were set by our school board for the return to plan has never been in the green zone. We've been in the red this entire time. And I think it's been difficult. Um, teachers and staff members can choose to go to work in the building now. The, la the whole entire spring semester, no one was allowed in the building, so you did have to work from home. We do have some things called safe learning centers, which allow our students who might not have connectivity come to school. The really interesting thing is, is you have to provide your own transportation. So if you think about that, it's not really working for the students who need it the most. Like we keep telling them there's light at the end of the tunnel, but they don't they don't see that light. And I we we have to help them see that light and give them some sense of hope about what this might look like for the rest of their school year, because it's been a long road since March 13th last year. Well, let's talk about that road. I mean, looking back in March 2020, schools across the country are shutting down. What did that look like for school counselors and and their work? And how long would you say did things in your experience take? to get back up and running. And when they did, how did that look different in a, a pandemic year than it would in previous years? Laura? Yeah, so, I, you know, at the end of last school year, it was <laughs> just a, a scramble of how do we stay in contact with our students and make sure that they're even just okay and have what they need. So it was a lot of figuring out who doesn't have access to even get to classes <laughs> digitally because they don't have a device or they don't have internet service or who needs food because they rely on food at school how do we get in contact with them? You know, what ways can we now use? You know, it was such, such a change of, you know, I could walk in the hall and see a, a facial expression like, uh, something's not right today. Come on, you know, and all of a sudden I don't have any of that right. to make sure that students are doing well. Laura, were you one of the chief points of contact for your school in trying to do outreach? Did they 
Diversify that across teachers and administrators or? Teachers were trying to contact. Each grade level had a spreadsheet. And so assistant principals were really kind of on top of that. And then school counselors were helping too, especially students that we really had this a strong relationship with and we knew some things that were going on. So it was kind of everybody, everybody on board to, to do whatever we could. And calling home in emails and um, our students <laughs> learning what that was um, because middle school students don't check emails, uh, but they all have a school email. So we were trying any kind of way. And, and at that point, the whole, you know, Zoom and things like that, it was like, okay, how do we use this? And, and how do, you know, how are teachers using this? And some were doing those live Zoom. So was, we were trying to jump in those as much as possible. Who's in here? What kids are showing up? So we can check on them. And even some, you know, working with our school social worker and like, we haven't heard from this family at all. And, you know, we're concerned they're not doing any work. So there's no sort of evidence that there is a connection to school. And she was um, awesome and did some home visits and things like that. Kat at Flagstaff High, how hard was it in those initial months to keep contact with students? It was like emergency triage, I believe, was what was going on in schools last year, where you were does a student have a device? Do they even have electricity or internet to try to, I mean, I'm serious, like thinking about internet and electricity and power for people to be able to log in to do something. And just thinking about how does one go about home visits? Like Laura brought that up. Our, our building principals and assistant principals go out on home visits. So does our Native American advisor and our Native American home liaison, but no one else does home visits. And I think that that was a really important missing piece for us as far as like who who can help us go find where our students at our, our McKinney Vento homeless liaison would help us go to hotels or shelters to try to find students and then thinking about Wi-Fi in those places sometimes doesn't exist so we we have lost students where we don't know where they went um, we don't know if they moved um, if they moved to a different town or a different city or a different state and and literally it was crisis response triage trying to find students and then as a high school trying to figure out how do you close the end of the school year like senior nights awards nights, end of the year banquets, graduation, like all of those big things that happen at the end of the year for middle schools and high schools, trying to figure out how does that work. And I still, Nat, I still feel like as we move into this conversation about what's happening now, we are still operating in crisis. We are in a, we're in a system of remote learning. And I use the quotes around that because this wasn't built for what students need. It was built to respond to a crisis, but we're still in that crisis operating as if it's normal and it's not. So asking about last spring when we were building the plane while it was going down the runway, what portion of the students in your school would you say got meaningful instruction and engagement with school and, and, and how many of them really was the spring a wash for? I, I oh. <laughs> you know, I think that, um, oh, a, a large majority, I feel like it was a wash for, to be honest. I mean, we were all, <laughs> everybody was in, in this crisis mode and dealing personally with everything that our teachers are amazing and did amazing work and in, in trying to keep our students staying on track with what their learning was. But even for our strongest students who are super interested in, in you know, what they're learning in the classroom, it 
wasn't the same. It wasn't the same learning that they have engaged in for the years that they've been here. And so, I mean, even for them, it, it, there was kind of a loss in, in sort of how they learned. And I think also a, a change in their motivation, I, I guess, um, a change in their desire to even kind of engage the same way that they have just because of, of how different it was. I think this year maybe brought it a little back more because there is at least live Zoom and things like that for some of our folks that brought them back a little bit more. But I would say there are many, many students. Um, I don't even have a number, but a large majority, I would think of our students who just, it just wasn't meant to be the way that they learn alone in a room and just do the work. One, because that's not the way they learn, but two, you know, learning is so engaging with others and they weren't. They were by themselves looking at a computer screen. They didn't get to collaborate in things that they normally do. And so I think we lost students in one, just not engaged in the learning, but just in their feeling of being a student at the school, being a middle schooler. So we had many who didn't do work for one reason or the other, some because of lack of, you know, things that they would need to learn, but some because the, the thing that they needed to learn that they didn't have was that engagement and connection with others um, in order to make that learning work for them. Kat, what would you say about Flagstaff High? You know, as I sit and listen to, to Laura, I think we've been using the terms about actively or passively engaging and thinking about what does active engagement look like? Because you could, and that's where I've been trying to help my students. Like, what does that mean? How do you actively engage with your classrooms every day? And as Laura has been alluding to, learning is very social for our students, at least in America, it has been. Come to school, see your students, talk to kids, go to lunch with them, have your clubs, like all of that stuff is central around socialization. And we as human beings need other people to be around and learn from. And all of the teachers that we have right now were not trained in remote online learning, unless you're working in an online school and neither were school counselors. And so you had to pivot in this emergency situation where each week we did a survey of our teachers and we said, how many students engaged this week? And what we meant by that was how many of them turned in your assignment that you put out on Google Classroom? Now, were they engaged? I have no idea. Some of them who wanted to improve their grade did it and to the point their grade was improved. Right. So they got the A. And then as soon as they got the A, they stopped. Um, the other students who were fine with just getting the credit, a D or whatever it was, they never did anything. And our teachers, like Laura said, did a great job of pivoting in an emergency situation. Now, as you explained it, right, the plane that's being built as it's going down the runway. And so for us, I think it's really important to think about that socialization of our students. And I think it's less about what they're learning and more about what's happening with them socially and emotionally and the mental health tolls that it's taken on our staff and our students and our parents. I think that that's where the school counselors come into play as we recognize these and we realize that groups of students need to get together for social time. This conversation has led into student athletes. Our student athletes have gotten privileges that our other students haven't gotten, where they get to come to practice, they get to go to games. And if you're not an athlete, you haven't engaged with any students in our district at all. You've got, you've got nothing. You get to go on a Zoom call. And if you turn on your camera, 
you might be able to see some people, but the majority of the students do not turn on their cameras. Most of them don't even have a picture of what they look like. So you're looking at a bunch of blank screens in your first hour class and you're like, I have no idea who these people are. Of course, you don't feel connected to school. Of course, you're like, this is dumb. I don't want to do this. I'm going to go get a job. And maybe I'll go get my high school diploma so it doesn't become a priority anymore. So as a society, if we start looking at how this is really impacting us as far as like what the priorities are, what's the value in education? What's the value in that? And I think trying to help students figure that out and find that light saying, yes, there is value in your high school diploma. Let's talk about how you can still get that. Because as soon as students stop engaging, I had a student who hasn't logged in. And Laura, I think you'll appreciate this story because this was my Friday late afternoon. Is this, I had a math teacher email me and I'm like, I haven't seen this student all semester. I'm like, we're into week five. What do you mean? He's like, I, he's never logged into math class. And I'm like, oh dear. So I get on the phone and I start calling. I call the guardian, find out the guardian had to move. The student now is living with the aunt. So I, I was like, can I get the aunt's phone number? Guardian's like, sure. So I call the aunt and I'm like, hey, um, so-and-so hasn't been coming to class. The aunt's like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, let me put him on the phone. I'm like, friend, where have you been? He's like, you know, I just, I don't, I mean, I missed the first week of school because I just, I don't, I don't feel like going anymore. And then the next week I didn't go again. And I just figured I've missed so much school that it, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm not going to graduate. And I'm like, no, 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 you still can graduate. And we had, and then guess what happens? I get his math teacher on the phone. We have a three-way call. And then I get his other English teacher on the phone. And all these teachers came on like Friday after school on their own devices, calling the student to say, no, you can still pass my class. Here's a plan. I want you to do this one thing this weekend. I want you to bring it to class on Monday. And I'm so glad that I got to talk to you on the phone. And like, if every single student had a team that was able to rally behind them and realize that the support that they have, because students, I think they think like, I missed this and now I can't. They just make their mind up, right, Laura? It's like, I did this and now I can't. And that's where the school counselor comes in and says, oh, yes, you can. And here's how you can do that. I've definitely seen that too in the middle school, you know, especially first semester of, of this school year and like, oh, I'm too far behind <laughs> and like, no, 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 let's bring you back in because now you're, you've written off the whole school year. And I, you know, interesting enough, I've, I've heard more of my middle school students talking about well, I can drop out at 16. Like I used to have maybe like one or two kids and, and, and but I've heard more of that this year. They're already making plans for that because they just, they aren't <laughs> connected to this. They don't see the point in it. Yeah. You know, Kat, you brought up how some students, uh, particularly athletes might have a different experience. And of course, there's a lot of talk about how the pandemic may differentially impact students. And, and I want to hear about that, both in terms of sort of the usual suspects, right? Well, I'm concerned about my poor kids because they may have particular device challenges or other things or transportation challenges, like we mentioned. But I'm curious whether there are some other distinctions that may make it tougher for some kids during a pandemic and maybe easier for others, like the, the athletics example you mentioned. So, I mean, to have this transparent, honest conversation, we have to realize that there have been systemic barriers put into place in education systems for years. 
And so now they've been exacerbated. And I think that's what Laura and I are having this conversation about is that the divide has widened and it's hard to know. It's hard to say, well, this group of students is having this problem because of that. And I feel like the pandemic right now, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't discriminate against certain people in certain ways that we might think it does. I know for for some of our students, they've had multiple family members who have been lost to COVID. I mean, multiple deaths, like parents, aunts, uncles, cousins. And when you think about a, a, a student having that loss, th that's insurmountable. You can't put like a description on what that looks like. When you talk about barriers as far as transportation and access to internet, you know, you can give a student a device but if they don't have power or internet to get onto the Wi-Fi, or if they don't have high-speed internet, when the teacher is streaming a video, they can't even watch it. So I think we have to be really careful and intentional about where we're like grouping certain groups of people into like these groups of students have these types of problems. And I think every student has an individual situation, which is why it's so hard, I think, sometimes for schools, because we have so many students compared to the number of staff that we have, which is where like community organizations and outreach, which I know Laura does a great job at, to help us connect those families to the things that they need so that their student can be successful. I know for us in our district, students haven't been able to come to the school to do any type of learning, particularly like with our career and technical education labs, they haven't been able to come in to get into the welding lab to do welding or come into culinary to learn how to bake. And so when you take a culinary class, you assume that everybody can go and buy the groceries for the ingredients for the, for the item that that class is making that day or that they even have a kitchen. What about our homeless students who are living in a hotel that doesn't have a kitchen. So you can think about every single individual student and the, and the roadblock that is put into their, their way and times that by five because there's probably seven other things that you didn't know that they were experiencing. You just knew that they were living in a hotel. And then as soon as you start having that conversation because you have a relationship with them, then you realize that their uncle is currently in ICU on a ventilator. And you're thinking like, no wonder why you're not engaged in school. Like you're worried about your family member dying. And that's a real fear. Laura, I don't know if you have some examples too where you're at with your middle schoolers. I definitely, you know, middle school's a, it's a tricky time. <laughs> uh, it's a sensitive time. Um, but I, I definitely, as I've seen it sort of across the board with middle schoolers really struggling um, socially, emotionally, but our students who um, already were having, um, challenges with anxiety or depression. I've definitely, of course, seen that kind of exacerbated. I've seen students develop more, you know, anxious feelings and things who previously it didn't, that I knew of was a concern. And then, then also our students who maybe receive special education services and those types of things, it's, it's a very different dynamic, especially when they're learning virtually how to understand and get the support that they need. But I see even like our super high achieving gifted students, the level of stress that they put on themselves anyway, but then in this world we're living in now in the pandemic and, and some of them are taking on like helping tutoring their friends because they're not quite getting it learning virtually, their stress levels and just anxiousness have gone up. 
Um, and my students who identify as LGBTQ, sometimes this is the place where they feel most supported in that identity. And, and so, you know, they may be in a home where that's not accepted at all. And so if they're learning virtually, that um, disconnect from their peers or educators who support them in that has caused, you know, some really fragile moments, which is why I know Kat mentioned the clubs to keep things like our GSA going even virtually so they have a space somewhere and can connect in some kind of way. The other thing I've seen is, so this is part that I don't think is talked about a lot, and I don't know that, I don't know number-wise what it would represent, but I do have students who have actually done well being virtual because they are not in trouble at school all the time. And I look at, you know, our students who historically over the years may have higher discipline referrals are Black and Latino males who are at home um, and aren't having somebody call their name and reprimand them all the time and feeling like they're going to get in trouble for everything, do really well <laughs> um, and, and show and academically and, and doing really well because they're at home and not having to face like discipline and consequences all the time that may or may not be warranted during the day. And so I've actually seen some kids kind of thrive in that situation because they're removed from something that caused a barrier or challenge to their success. That's interesting, Laura. I'm, I'm curious, you have some students, you said right now 50-50, students that are coming into the building and students who are remote. Is it as simple as one might assume that it's just easier for students that are coming to the building and tougher for kids who are remote? Or it, it, is that not uh, something that we should just take at face value? You know, and I haven't seen I haven't seen it play out just like that. So it's, I don't think it's as simple because I have students who are in person and they've been in person as soon as they had the option to a few weeks into the school year and who are really struggling and struggling with not just academics, but social and emotional and anxiety and things and having suicidal ideations. And it's not just, I think what people might think the students who are at home and really removed and isolated who are having those issues. I have some students who are doing really well in their virtual learning as well. So yeah, it's not quite black and white. So I think that's just a notion to, you know, this pandemic and how it does impact us all in such different ways and um, what experiences our students are having, you know, outside of the classroom or the Zoom and how that impacts them then in, in the, even if they come in the school building. So I'm curious how the pandemic has changed your roles. I mean, you've talked about it to some degree, but just on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, Laura, what does a typical day look like this month? And what are the, the major differences in, in the pandemic? I think for myself and my, my co-counselor, one of the big things was we knew going into the school year from what we experienced at the end of last year and even some conversations we had with students over the summer is we wanted to make sure we were super open and available as much as possible. So as much as we want to be proactive and reach every student, and we have um, in our lessons, we cut back on the lessons a bit so that we would have even more open time because we know we have students who are having a really hard time individually with things that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for a group or a classroom discussion about it. And so we wanted to make sure we had that open. We know it takes extra time to reach out to these folks who are not in our building, um, who are learning remotely so that we can get to them and reach them 
And we wanted to be super intentional about those proactive things we were doing. So the very first thing was coping strategies and dealing with stress for everyone. And so we were super intentional about exactly what lessons and things our students were receiving. You know, for every student who comes to us with stressors and anxiety, we know there's others we aren't hearing from um, that are dealing with that. So we wanted to make sure we were putting that out there. The more that we saw sort of across the board from individuals, let's get this information out to everyone. We opened up a lot of our time to make sure when students were coming to us and, and having um, you know, an anxiety concern or having suicidal ideation and things like that, that we were, which we always have space for, but we knew it was gonna, we would need more time for individual students and also created more time to support our staff and doing some things to help them sort of help their own wellness and teaching and um, balancing all of this. This has been um, amazingly difficult for them. Our teachers have done great work, but it's hard and stressful for them. So we've actually opened up space to provide more time for staff, just discussions that they can have, times to connect as best as possible and relax um, and be mindful and things like that to kind of help them also cope with what's going on. Kat, how has your day-to-day work life changed other than the fact that you're doing it remotely, which I know is the elephant in the room. I know. I don't know when my day starts and ends. I'm going to be honest with you. It doesn't, it bleeds over from day to day. Uh, The sheer amount of emails that have come in prior to remote learning is probably triple or quadruple. Like the number of emails that you now have to respond to from parents, community members, students, organizations, whoever. So I think that's been really interesting. I find that the school counselors tend to have their hands in everything that's going on at the school because it relates back to what Laura was just saying is like this social, emotional wellness and mental health is not just with our students. We're finding it with our staff. I think we have really been trying to tell the narrative of what's going on to our staff, because unfortunately, we also have staff who don't know what the students' stories are. They don't know that the students who are struggling. And so sometimes the compassion can be lacking there. And I think that's the job of the school counselors to try to help bring that data to the presence of the staff. I know Laura does a really great job of that. So every staff meeting, we're trying to say, these are the number of students who were on our attendance watch list. These are a number of students that we're trying to reach out to. Does anybody know? And just trying to bring that to the whole staff. So it's a whole school trying to find solutions for that and not just the student services team. I think for us really trying to real in community services because with 3.5 of us and a full-time social worker there's not enough of us and time to go around trying to support the individual needs that Laura was also talking about so really trying to figure out how to loop in community services like counseling now that's remote you can do a counseling session with someone down in Phoenix which is two and a half hours south of where Flagstaff is so like trying to get that information out to our families It's a lot more individual appointments, you know, for high school right now, we're trying to help the students realize what their plan is after school. Like, what are you going to do? June 4th is coming up real quick. Are you going to go off and work? Are you going to do an apprenticeship? Are you going to do the military, you know, college, whatever it is, and trying to help them figure that out. So trying to set up one-on-one appointments with our admissions reps has really been helpful because Nat, here's a really interesting thing. We had four times the amount of colleges that signed up to come and visit Flagstaff High School through Zoom this year. 
<laughs> so we had like, oh my gosh, NYU and Georgia. We had all these schools. I'm like, these schools don't know where Flagstaff, Arizona is, right? And I was like super excited. I'm like, yes, like check this out. These are super opportunities. Well, guess what? None of our students went. And we couldn't send that we could not send the hall slip to them to be like, hey, they're here, come down to the room, right? So we were like sending emails, but the kids don't check their email. And then we're trying to send a note to the teacher, but the teacher's teaching. And it was just like, dang it. And so it's like, you think you have all these opportunities for your students, but the students are like, never mind. I don't want to log in through Zoom. I'm on Zoom all day, Miss Pastor. I don't want to do it. And number two, they don't set up like their phone or their little planner, like we all have of like, don't forget to log in at 1030 because Georgia Tech's going to be here. And it's things like that. So then we realize like, okay, one-on-one -on -one appointments, for our students and their maybe family members in the evening or at a different time because they didn't want to do it during the day and they didn't want to be in a session with a bunch of other students. So there's just been some silver linings that have come out of this for us to think about how to do things differently. And I just, I hope that there's going to be a time where we realize whatever this transition piece is going to be because we're going to come back to school hopefully in person soon, but we can't just open the doors and pretend like everything is going to be okay. You have to realize that they have like post-traumatic stress that has occurred for them. And, and I think, Nat, the piece that's really interesting about this is that COVID-19, this pandemic, is different than anything else. Because if your family member maybe got the flu or got a cold, you weren't afraid that they were going to die or could die. And now we have students who are like, Miss Pastor, my aunt has COVID. And you can just tell in their voice that they are scared Right. And so when you think about that traumatic experience that even our students and staff have gone through, you cannot pretend that the school buildings are going to open and it's going to fix everything. We have to have a plan to help deal with the trauma that has occurred for the past year. So usually at the end of the podcast, I like to ask, you know, a quick, bright, sort of happy note to end on. But I think that would be sort of a disservice because as I brought up in the introduction, it's really hard for us to know how students are doing. And there's a lot of people that are very afraid that students are doing terribly. And there's a lot of people who maybe underestimate it. And you two are in a position to, to answer that given your perspective, but it's a perspective that most people don't have. So I'll ask you each, you know, just briefly in, in, in 30 seconds or so, how would you say the kids in your school are doing during this pandemic? I think our students are being resilient and I think they're doing the best they can with how they know how to be. As Laura has said, we have to be really careful about making these blanket statements that everybody's doing terrible and everybody's suicidal or whatever the statement is. And that's definitely not true. Are there pieces that are missing from the day-to-day -day interaction and social engagement? Of course there is. Just like with us in our lives, we have to remember that we are doing the best we can with what we are equipped to do. Depending upon your district and depending upon the professional development that your teachers or staff have received, that is what they are able to offer their students. So for us, it's like, how do we continue to do better once we know better? And once we know better, we're going to continue to do better and so forth and so on. And this is a journey. This is going to change the way we do education. And it has allowed people to finally realize that for years we have undervalued the education system in, in, in America. And now we really have to think about what is that going to look like differently now going forward and really make some action for that to happen. And I know our students at Flagstaff High School, some are thriving Others are kind of just doing their thing like they would have done in the beginning. And then there's others who are not doing well. And for me, I think it's kind of mirrors what we would have seen in our regular school year without a pandemic. But for us, our attention is really 
honed in on those students who are not doing well and helping them get the services that they need. And once they're connected to those services, we do see improvements with them, that continued support. Laura and I can't just be like, okay, we had this one conversation, you're good? All right, high five, air high five. That doesn't happen. That continued level of support is what's gonna help bring them along with us through that finish line and help them see that light at the end of the tunnel. And Laura? You know, I would say overall, um, our students are, are surviving. We have some that are, are thriving and doing well, but there's still pieces missing for them. Obviously that connection and social piece. And even our students who are struggling, who may be having a hard time, who experience, you know, the panic attacks of anxiety or who are having suicidal thoughts are pushing through with support and that support in school, outside of school, you know, wrapping that all around them with their families, counseling outside of school. But they're surviving. And I and I think it's, you know, they're all in different places in that. And, you know, even the ones who were still bringing back in constantly, where'd you go? Come back. But they're coming back. Um, and that's, that's good. And, you know, it's just about figuring out now what extra supports they need so we can keep them here. But this is hard and they're surviving through this. But it's a matter of making sure we provide, I mean, any and every support that we can think of or create, um, and whether that's academic or social emotional, whatever it is to help them really push through and survive and get to a place where hopefully we all can get back to thriving. And But I think at this moment, survival and, and, and them being kind of resilient in the moment. I mean, they've shown it over and over and it's just continuing to help them stay in that spot so we can get to the next step. Well, Lauren, Kat, thanks for sparing a few minutes to talk to us about your efforts to, to get those kids through a school year unlike any other. And I hope your year picks up and the kids come back to school and we get back to that thriving soon. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Laura Ross and Kat Pastor-Lawrence. I'd also like to thank our producer, Matt Rice, who makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.